we were recording our second album at a studio called TTG. And somebody said, you know, the Doors are recording downstairs in the smaller studio. I went down there, we were peeking in, and there was Morrison on the floor. Hello and welcome to Opening the Doors, a podcast dedicated to the doors, psychedelic rock, and everything in between. Uh, I'm your host, Bradley Netherton. We have a special guest with us here today, all the way from the west coast of California, Los Angeles band around the same time as the doors, and who has an interesting connection to the doors that we'll get into uh, closer to the end. You know, one of the founding members, George Bunnell of Strawberry Alarm Clock. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Bradley. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about Strawberry Alarm Clock, and y'all are actually working on a new album and trying to get, you know, trying to get that rolling. And we want to, we, there's a GoFundMe. We'll have the link here. We're going to be uh, putting that out on all our socials. So um, is there anything, you know, tell us a little bit about the new album. What made you want to get in the studio and, uh, you know, start start working away at it? Um, we had done an album in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Called Wake Up Where You Are. And kind of a after our last yeah. studio album back, you know, like in 68 or 16, yeah, 68, we have never really stopped writing five of the guys that are in the band right now were on the first album the incense and peppermints album yeah which is like unheard of yeah i know it's really kind of strange anyway we we all have remained real close and uh even though there were changes in the band lineup and stuff yeah they were they were never out of you know grief with each other you know they were yeah they were, yeah they were crooked management things and all kinds of wacky stuff that happened. But, um, but we all remained really like brothers, especially the fact that we had this uh, extraordinary thing happen when we were like 18 years old. And mm-hmm. most of us were 18, some even 17 and, and one guy 21, but, but to, we're all tied together. We're connected from uh, having a number one record, you know, and, that's yeah. like a weird thing, you know, you don't really, really, because there's a lot of hits, you know, and that don't make it to number one that are, that are huge hits that you've heard of, you know, and that you, that are in your daily life even, but to reach that pinnacle and, and the experience that we all had together, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it connected us forever. It, it's like, we're like a like brothers you know, because of it. It was like it was like a birth, you know. Yeah, and yeah. It was really weird, and, and and so it's it's held us together, and so we keep writing. And when we're ever in a room together, the first thing that happens is you know we start picking up our instruments and and coming up with ideas. We're we're we feel real comfortable with each other, and so we bounce ideas off of each other, and. We have lots of songs, actually, and and so we just decided to go back in the studio and start, you know, because we had, uh, I guess we had a little bit of money. You know, we have an LLC, and that's where mm-hmm. the money goes into from the GoFundMe. We got a little influx from somebody licensing incense and peppermints or something. I don't know exactly where it came from, but we got a little bit of money and not a lot, and and but it, we thought, okay. Let's let's just go in the studio and because we did it in 2000 uh, after 2012 after that album came out we actually went into the studio again with Carrie Brown and Billy Corgan and uh, oh wow yeah and, yeah and and you know they they wanted to do some stuff with us and so it got us going again you know like writing again and then um, and we just. And, and then we kind of that project ended up getting shelved for several reasons. Uh, one was the part of our plan was with the bass player of the Electric Prunes, Mark Tulin, and yeah. and he passed away in 2011, and it kind of screwed everything up as far yeah. as our trajectory was concerned because he he was kind of part of it, and you know with the Electric Prunes and whatnot, and. 
um, we and we go back to high school. I, I've I've known him since high school. Oh wow! And yeah, there's there's a lot of lot of musicians came out of our high school, and and so we, you know, we were all friends. We were it's the music community, you know. Anyway, so we kept writing and writing uh, since then, and and we finally said, okay, now we have this little bit. Let's go in there and, and see what we can do and start recording some of this stuff because we've been playing it live here and there. And so it's coming out great. Now we're having fun, you know, but, it, but it, it's like all of a sudden now we're at the point where, because we got a really good engineer, Michael Stern. Uh, Michael John Stern is a fantastic engineer. And, you know, he's done like 200 film scores and wow, wow. he's he's great. And so he's working and he loves the stuff. And, and I work with him in another situation. It's called the tribe. It's a, a fundraising group. It's, it's a, a, a band, a huge band with all kinds of interchangeable mm-hmm. parts, you know, different players come in all the time. We, we work sometimes together in that environment and uh, raising money for uh, underprivileged kids, you know, for instruments, for music programs. And oh, school. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really cool, and a lot of homeless stuff that we do. So we we had all this stuff to record, and the guy that's the head of of the tribe, his name is Kevin Wax. Well, he owns a recording studio, so he gave mm-hmm. a, gave us the recording studio to use. Oh wow! And yeah, which is totally great. Yeah. And so we have that, and then and then Michael, we have to pay Michael. So it's like, um, and that's where our expenses have finally come to a point where like uh oh we need help yeah and, uh, we've never asked for help you know and so this is kind of a, a new new territory for us and but we think it's it's uh, worth it we're having fun and we've the band has been together forever so mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and i think that's you know let, that's a good place to start let's turn back the clock i want to talk about how you started out because you had an interesting way that you started out you started listening to country and western from a place i believe called nudie's rodeo taylor's uh, is that uh, yeah. correct yeah and- i was when when uh, my parents moved here from massachusetts and uh, and brought me along <laughs> yeah. and uh i was three years old and we were with my grandparents and everybody just said we're going to california we left all our cousins in massachusetts back there and they stayed back there for the most part and so we came out here and the people that we stayed with were my grandfather's brother and his wife, so my grand aunt and grand uncle. Mm-hmm. And they had two kids. And and so we stayed at their place. And then my mom and dad both worked at Lockheed. So my grandparents, though, bought a store right away. And it was at, on the corner of Vineland and I think Van Owen. It was called Jerusalem's Five and Dime. We're Italian. Yeah. And so, and right next door to it is Nudie's uh, Western wear. And so when I was a little kid, my, my, my grandparents babysat me over <laughs> at the store. I had, they just brought me to the store and that's where I hung out until my parents got off work. And Nudie had a daughter that was like my age, three or four or whatever. And, and so it, we used to run around the between the two stores. They were right next to each yeah. other. And and Nudie, he had the coolest cars. You know, he had these cars with with uh, bullhorns on the hood and yeah. guns for you know door handles and cowhide. And they were convertibles. They were like they were super cool. So we used to enjoy going over there. Well, all of Nudie, they were jammers. They used to he played a mandolin. And there's a couple other guys there played one guy played uh, fiddle and another guy played guitar and they and um, some of them like Doy Odell he was a, a well known you know all the people mm-hmm. basically were well known that were hanging out there like Pat Buttram and all these people oh yeah you know Roy Rogers and yeah I mean Elvis had his clothes made there but and Ricky Nelson it it's, goes on and on Graham Parsons. Yeah, and they had a jam session basically every day, and so I, I, I was so into it. I think I was—I don't know how old I was—but by the time I, my mom and dad said, "Well, do you want to learn an instrument?" Also, on on this same thing, the same 
time period, my the people that we moved in with, my grand aunt and grand uncle, so they had two kids that had a band and they had a organ. My, my one cousin played organ and the other one played guitar, electric guitar. And they had a drummer friend. And I, I think that my cousin, because I don't remember a bass player. I, I just, I just, I think he might have played it on the organ, uh, foot pedals. And yeah. anyway, we were in the house and they were rehearsing in the living room. That was my, when I was three. I mean, that was the first thing I saw musically and in person. And it was, well, I mean, you know, three, you know, you don't know much, but I'll tell you, that leaves an impression on you. Something like that. Loud music. It probably wasn't even that loud, but there it was. It was like, and they were hitting the instruments and playing them. And I was just wowed, you know, and, and, and so that kind of got me going in that direction of wanting to be part of the music. And then, and then in the people in, in Nudie's store, all jamming all the time, it was a really neat exposure to it and, you know, live music and, and jamming. Yeah, and it's kind of how I ended up as a jamming band. You know, we're we jam. You know, it sounds a lot like whenever I, I so I grew up. My my grandpa was big. He into bluegrass music, sort of bluegrass gospel. So that's how I I grew up around that. And I started playing bass out of necessity because well, we had my my grandpa played banjo, mandolin, guitar. I had an uncle who played guitar wow. and mandolin. I have. You know, and, and it was either going to be the bass or the fiddle. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about the fiddle. And I know you had a similar experience with the fiddle, but yours was that you'd had to play violin in the band. Yeah. So, so you well, said no going there. It was like, that was, that was the only thing they had, you know, in the fifties, yeah. you, you, like I was in elementary school and, and they, they, my mom said, yeah, you, okay. You know, I, I don't know if they have to pay for it, for the instrument to rent it or what, but they, they, sponsored me to some extent and and i took lessons at school and played violin in the school thing but i the deal was it was christmas songs and the like and that's yeah. not what i wanted to do i wanted to play fiddle i wanted to oh yeah you know, i wanted to do something cool and you know i watched that movie about ireland last night the banshee movie oh i haven't no i don't know banshee's of initial and whatever it's called i can't pronounce it and they all sat around jamming and played you know violin and mandolin and stuff and that's the kind of they played that kind of music and i thought yeah growing up in ireland you probably you didn't get forced to play violin another way yeah (laughs) do that stuff that movie is creepy by the way (laughs) i'll I'll put it on the watch list it's really weird it's like the weirdest and it's a comedy of sorts. Well, we will talk about a movie that you were in later on, but how about we start here? We, uh, you know, you started playing bass and I know you've probably told the story a lot, but just give us the, you know, whatever version you want to that strawberry alarm clock came, you know, it merged the, the sixpence and, uh, what was the other group? Waterford, Waterford train. Yes. Yeah. Waterford train was my band in high Mm -hmm. school and all, all my best friends. And then, um, the sixpence was their band in high school. The other guys from the alarm clock, well, three of our guys, me, Steve Bartek, and Randy Seal, mm-hmm. were from Waterford Train. And they had Lee Freeman and Ed King and Mark Whites and Gene Gunnels were over there on the sixpence side. And they had more. There's, there's, they had a lot of different mm-hmm. people in and out. We had played at a party. This is the part I remember. And we, both bands were alternating sets, you know. And we were both set up and we both played a set and we got to say hi and everything. And their manager asked our drummer to come and do some vocals because they were recording Incense and Peppermints. Well, they had they had already recorded the track, which was only Ed King, Mark Stephen Whites and Gene Gunnels. Just three three people played on that record. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's it. Nobody else. Ed played the guitars and the bass, and Mark played piano and, and organ, and Gene played drums and cowbell. <laughs> and that was the yeah. whole deal. The producer decided that it should have lyrics, and he said he's got a writer, because he was a publisher, so he had he had a writer, John Carter, that had the title, Incense and Peppermints, and, and, but no lyrics, and so he thought that it fit the music. Correctly so. <laughs> and so he um, he enlisted 
John Carter to finish the body of lyrics and bring it back to the band. So he did that, and they they there's another side story, but they tried to get everybody in the band to sing it, and and it turned out that nobody's voice fit it because you know in those days. So the song was an instrumental first, and it was recorded in E, and you mm-hmm. don't change it. That's it. There, you're, it's in E. You know, yeah. there was no going back, and so. Those were the days of, well, it's still that, but, it, you know, time is money. Da, 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 yeah, you know, there. Yeah. And we were, and we had suits that were controlling us in the studio. They got the lyrics and everything, and they called our drummer and said, you know, come and see if you can sing it too. And so he he went in there and they tried to his voice on it and they, they didn't think it suited it, uh, but they had him do a bunch of backgrounds. And, and then Gene... Before the lyrics came about, Gene Gunnels, the the other drummer, these guys are both the drummers in our band now, Gene Gunnels and Randy Seal. So Gene (laughs) quits the band because of his girlfriend. His girlfriend tells him, you know, he had to make, she gave him an ultimatum. Yeah. Those things happened all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, if it's either me or the band, you know, and because the band wasn't making any money, so he quits the band. Well, he quit right after he played drums on Incense and Peppermints because <laughs> he didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And so then Randy comes in and so they said, will you be the drummer? Because he was already doing the background harmonies. And he said, sure, you know. And and they said, we need songs. Do you know anybody that does your other band have songs? And he goes, yeah. And so he, he calls me and Steve Bartek to go to a, a Sixpence band rehearsal and play them our songs and and randy told them he would sing them and so which was like rainy day mushroom pillow birds yeah, yeah. Trees, strawberries mean love paxton's backstreet carnival you know hum and happy all those different things we went over and played the songs and both uh, mark whites and ed king loved all the songs they said we want to record them all let's do those so we go in the studio together we're still our band they're still their band we go in and we they have incense and peppermints is all done and then we go in and we start recording the songs that we wrote and they had steve play flute and they had me play bass because i knew them and he knew them. and they had me singing background harmonies on them too and randy sang the lead on them and and so they came out really nice and so we were like okay and and then then there, then Ed and Mark both said, "Can you guys join the band? Will you guys? Can you guys be in the band?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I want to. That'd be great." And I have to go tell my band, my other band, the other guys yeah. that are left over, you know, that we're we're like half the band's leaving. And then Steve had to tell his mom because he was only fifteen at the time. Oh wow. Steve Bartek. And so Steve goes home and he tells his mom and I, I, we lived next door to each other. And, and my mom immediately said, no, you're not doing that. You're going to go to college. You know, you're our first kid to get, that's going to go to college. And that's, you're, that's what you're going to do. And I was like, no, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I was already enrolled in Chouinard art school. My mom was so bummed out because she was an art artist and, and she wanted me to, but she didn't pursue it in her life and she wanted me to. So it was one of those vicarious things. But so mm-hmm. I just said, well, I'm 18. I I'll, I can do what I want, you know, and Steve couldn't. So he had to stay home. I, I joined the band immediately. You know, we go in and we finish the albums done and we go in and take the pictures for the album cover, the first album and stuff. I'm the guy standing on it. Yeah. <laughs> the only one standing <laughs> The record comes out, the single, Incense and Peppermints, is already out. And it was getting a lot of airplay in Santa Barbara and then Palm Springs and San Diego. And then then it came to L.A. And uh, I remember the the DJ in L.A., it was this underground radio station called KBLA. And Dave Diamond was the DJ. Yeah, yeah. He had this thing, and it was called the Diamond Mine. And it was good, good. He was the only guy in L.A. playing, like extended cuts you know like they did the the long version of bluebird you know by yes, Bob. Springfield. Mm-hmm. and you know it was it was cool and good radio station anyway he said i'll get all over this and i 
sure there was some payola situation going on behind the scenes that we didn't know about. If you're talking about local radio stations, I know the Doors, yeah. Uh, oh, mem- yeah. yeah, members of the Doors brought that up because, you know, they first released Break On Through in January of 67. And they said that the that they were calling into radio stations to get them to play it, and that they yeah. eventually they called on and was like, "Hey, we know you're from the band. We're not going to do this." And I actually heard a story that you guys even took that a step further and were physically going to door to door to across the West Coast to different radio stations, giving the single out, meeting the DJs. There's it's hard work and determination. I mean, it paid off because it releases. It was a slow burn, really. Releases in May doesn't hit number one till November of that year, right? So I mean, it was a slow burn. Yeah, it, it was. We were going. Uh, it was footwork. We were we were going to radio stations and and we you know our manager was setting it up and you know we had a manager. He turned out to be a crook, but he was really yeah. great in the beginning. You know mm-hmm. he got us everywhere and the producer was good too. Frank Slay. We had a lot yeah. of good things about the band. Steve Bartek was so bummed <laughs> that he that I was going out because you know we're like best friends yeah. and uh, and we still are to this day. But and he's in the current b- b- lineup too. But going to all these radio stations, meeting all these different people, doing and we started to do little local TV shows and stuff. And the record started to get played, and it, in LA, it became the most requested song in LA. And that's when oh wow, Unity Records picked it up because it was on All American. Yeah, yes. The first yeah. pressing of All Americans said the sixpence in strawberry and incense and peppermints. And then they quickly changed it to strawberry alarm clock, incense and peppermints on All American. Then Uni picked it up and it was on their label. And when Uni picked it up, it there's a some guy, it's a Bill Drake. And so Bill Drake had a, a lot of CBS radio stations across the country. Well, our little footwork thing that we were doing going from you know radio station to radio station all of a sudden didn't exist anymore it was like this guy put him on all like 250 stations in the united states in one day <laughs> and then wow. went on their playlist and and not just being a you know request you know for a new song in those days you had program directors and they were real strict about what could be played and what couldn't yeah and they had songs had to be like already like kind of on the charts already you know you couldn't just go get your song played but we did and that's that's kind of how it went but then once it once it went uh, national like that it happened overnight and in a way we couldn't believe it it was like you know wildfire you know all of a sudden boom there it was everywhere and then we were getting all kinds of calls and one of them was william morris agency saying you're on our roster now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, let's get into the specifics a little bit, I guess. You know, you had Paul, Bu- I think his name was Paul Buff. He he came up with yeah. this 10-track tape recorder that, that you know, nobody else was using tape machine at the time. So you could use yeah. 10 tracks instead of either eight or four. And, and even Frank Slay, you know, this is an interesting thing that Frank Slay actually decided that it didn't need to be in stereo. It was only mixed right. in Mono, which is something the Beatles did, too. If you look at the way they did Sgt. Pepper's, when they went in the studio, they meticulously hand-mixed themselves the mono version. And they said, oh, we'll yeah. let whoever mixed the stereo version. We don't care about it. And somewhere along the way, I guess the tapes got lost or or something happened oh, to the master. Yeah, that's later. Uh, that, there was a huge fire at Universal. Oh, okay. And we don't know for sure, but the rumor is, is that our masters were involved in that fire. Lots of famous stuff yeah yeah going way back it was a big vault there that burned and at universal so all those universal artists and i never we never got real confirmation that it actually that our stuff was gone in there but (laughs) we think so so yeah i mean and and that's the unfortunate side of things with physical and and i mean there's downsides to both sides now but at least now with digital i think a lot of stuff can be backed up but i know the doors even throughout they were moving stuff from Electra Studios to, I forget the exact story. A lot of the tapes just got thrown out. And then some of them actually survived because people took them out of the garbage. But they just wow. threw, some of their, threw some of their outtakes away. And so over the years, there hasn't been as many releases. Like the Beatles have everything. So the Beatles could literally release like 5,000 hours if they wanted to. But, you know, there's a lot of these people, just the masters are gone. And, you know, speaking of the Beatles, this is a... Uh, Something I heard Mark talk about because this single really came about from Randy Seal and vocal coach Howard Davis. Those harmonies really came out. And I think Mark even talked about his love of the Beatles, seeing the movies and stuff. Did the uh, Beatles influence you at all? Did their work influence you? Uh, me personally? Yeah. Uh, somewhat. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, because I'm a bass player, and McCartney was his bass parts are like really something. You know, yeah, they really yeah. are. You know, you get a lot of people going, "Ah, the Beatles ain't nothing," you know. And and there was always this Beatles Stones thing. You know, the Stones mm-hmm. were, you know, hipper and all that. The bass parts, eight well, even the bass parts of the Stones are amazing. And and but I was all that's all I really concentrated on <laughs> was yeah. bass parts. You know, I didn't care much about everything else. But but yeah. they were amazing and and they influenced me. Yeah. Because you're real big into like the Yardbirds, the Who. I know yeah. that you some of the bombastic sounds. I think is how you put it. Um, were the Doors yeah. on your radar at all? They didn't really even even have a bass player, so I don't know if that, that's why they weren't on my radar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of like a. I I just had a hard time with that, you know, because I was so into bass. I John Entwistle, you know. Oh, amazing! Unbelievable. Now it's funny to listen to his bass parts that are isolated on some of the things. Yes, yeah. He was he's wild. He, he oh, was, yeah. The records were tame, but then live he, he just just goes crazy. The Doors it, it was a funny thing for me, and even though and I didn't like the first. You know, we were recording our second album at a studio called TTG. We still yeah. had Paul Buff with us, but we flipped over from uh, Original Sound. Original Sound was at a radio station too. It was it was uh, K. KRLA or something, I think. Mm-hmm. The building. We were recording our second album, and somebody and we were upstairs in this big room, and somebody said, "You know, the Doors are recording downstairs in the smaller studio, and maybe you might be able to go down and hear them." And so I thought, "Oh, that's cool." So I went down there, me and one of the other guys, and uh, Lee, I think it was, and we were peeking it. They had a little window into the studio and uh, on in the door and we were looking peeking in and there was morrison on the floor with like candles and we thought wow we couldn't hear him though and he was in there and then robbie krieger comes up behind me and he goes weird huh (laughs) and i'm like wow robbie krieger and, and I'm friends with Robbie now. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. He, he's definitely yeah. somebody I got to get on the podcast one day. I read his book. Oh, it's amazing. I, I did a I did a concert with him not too long ago. I think it was 2019. We, we did a, a benefit for. A, yes. I completely forgot about that. Slipped my mind. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Didn't connect yeah, it. Was, it was fun. That was nice. Yeah. El, Elliot Easton played guitar and yeah. I played bass and Robbie was playing guitar and it was, it was fun. And, you know, with his other band members, it was great. Speaking of the door, speaking of the Beatles, in 1967, you have a lot of these, I guess, titular psychedelic tracks going on. And you sort of have the old British guard of the Beatles and and the Stones with their, you know, Beatles, Penny Lane, All You Need Is Love, Hello Goodbye in 67. And then the Stones with a nut piling on another hit with Ruby Tuesday. But then in this other little crevice of the area of Los Angeles, I mean, how many all these groups that had their first number one hits, the Turtles, uh, you know, the Association, the Doors, and Strawberry Alarm Clock. Uh, even Dick Clark even named the number one song of 1967, Light My Fire, on his show American Bandstand. At the time, did it feel like an us versus them to you? Did it feel like the West Coast was just like the hippest thing going, the grooviest thing going to you? Well, no. We The way we thought of it was we were kind of proud of, of the L.A. bands. And, um, yeah. and there was the San Francisco was like a different state. And those bands were completely different than the bands in LA. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was, you know, I don't, and I don't know, you know, where the difference really lies. They were more hippie like, obviously. Yeah. And we were more like valley kids. And, you know, we, we were kids that grew up in the middle class neighborhoods, you know, and had garage bands, literally. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was, that's where the kind of the difference was. And they were all kind of like living together already. Also, a lot of these bands are a lot older than us, lot, a lot older than we were mm-hmm. at the time. Because, you know, we were 17 and 18 when we hit it. Yeah. And, and which is unusual. All Everybody else was over 21 that, that we were playing with. and, and they, But we knew them all uh, event, after we became famous. We got to know them all. But we used to go see them, too. We used to try to sneak into the clubs to see like love uh, oh yeah Arthur Lee and love uh now there was a bass player too oh yeah <laughs> and Ken Forsey yeah they 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 were good and, and so they were something to watch uh, iron butterfly 
we had all these yeah. bands around, you know, the, you could in Buffalo Springfield, uh, the seeds, it's, it's like a, a never ending list of, of bands. And people used to think we were from uh, Santa Barbara because we started our record up there and, and the sixpence, the first gig that they had that was like a, a, a residency yeah. <laughs> kind of a gig was at a pizza parlor. Really? In, yeah, in Santa Barbara, and they played every night. They were they were doing my songs already before I was actually performing in the band. So I was going wow. there and, and listening to them do my songs. I I was tripping out on it. You know, it's like that was cool. And uh, and then next thing I know, they they wanted me to be in it. So you know, when you talked about the seeds, you talked about the West Coast sound a little bit, and one of the first groups that I think of. I guess from my perspective, one of the first ones I was introduced to when I think of West Coast Sound is the Beach Boys, and they oh, had yeah, that's the biggie. Yeah, yeah, they but they had they had a waning popularity, I guess, in the late '60s, and as as counterproductive as it seems to what they are trying to do, they include two groups that are synonymous with the counterculture itself, which is Buffalo Springfield and Strawberry Alarm Clock in their '68 tour. Um, yeah, '67 and '68. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean that's yeah, that, that's real trippy that that I mean because they they take off the they they get away from the beach look but then they wear these weird white sort of suits I don't know if that was their their bag or or uh, yeah you know when we first were the first tour we did with them which was in uh, started in Washington D.C. and in November of '67 and it was the th- it was called the Thanksgiving tour their annual Thanksgiving tour yeah and I. I think it was Bruce Johnson, you know, because we were wearing uh, East Indian kurtas, yeah. I recall. And and Bruce Johnson goes, yeah, because when we weren't on stage, I was wearing like a white sweater and in <laughs> slacks or something, you know. And yeah. when we were going out to dinner or whatever at the hotel, Bruce goes, "I don't know why you guys just don't look how good you look. I I don't know why you don't just dress like that instead of wearing those <laughs> other things." Yeah, yeah. The Indian clothes, and he's like, "What's all that about?" And it was like, ah, "I don't know." You know, was, we're kids. You know, who knows? Yeah, I don't know. The clothes were fun. They, they, so the clothes came about. Like the first album cover was taken. The picture was taken in the shop that made the clothes, and that was the first day that we saw those clothes. And oh, wow. it was random. The whole thing was random. Our uh, drummer. Had lunch the day before at this restaurant in Westwood, California, called the Loft. And downstairs from the Loft is was this Indian place called Sat Purush, and they made it was called Designs because of Sat Purush. And uh, Sat Purush was an Indian god, but they mm-hmm. anyway they made pillows and drapery and clothes, and they were all the kurtas and stuff. And um, they had East Indian jewelry and all kinds of fun stuff in there. It, Randy's, you know, we had been going a lot around with our photographer and our manager. And uh, and they were taking us to men's clothing stores because it was time to do the album cover. And we had to, they said, you have to get some kind of outfit. And we we're like, Ugh. and so we ended up after we got, we couldn't stand the big polka dot shirts and the big collars and the silk and this and that we were like nah we can't do that and so randy goes well i saw this indian shop you know when i had lunch yesterday in westwood and and it looked really interesting so we said okay let's go there so we go with we just sort of bombard the place we walk in the whole band the photographer everything by the way our photographer it it was ed carafe and his assistant was rodney bingenheimer on that photo shoot of our first album we go into that shop and Kathy Scarms was the owner and her and her husband, I think his name was Rick. They greeted us and they were like, Oh, welcome, welcome, welcome. And, you know, we said, we want to, we told them we have to get, you know, outfitted and take pictures in the, you know, and of what it looks like. And so they jumped all over and they measured us and they came out and put all these different clothes on us. All the things that you see in the album cover, all that was, then we're like, we're like just to the side of the front window of the store in that oh. picture of oh, okay. the first album. It was like we were window dressing. And so 
people were walking by and kind of double take. Oh, There's that. some weird mannequins. What in the? Yeah. yeah. What are they doing? Anyway, Ed, Ed, the photographer, Ed Craft, he's going, these pictures are, they're like great. He was taking black and white and color and, and the record company just, they saw it and they said, Oh, it has to be color. And, you know, the, so they, they made it the album cover immediately. Uh, and that's how we ended up in those clothes. And then we weren't even thinking of it that, once the album came out, that's how we had to dress from there. <laughs> it was like, oh no, you know. Yeah. So, and there we were wearing those things. I remember Ed King, our guitar player. He yeah. he hated them. He goes, they make me look fatter than I already am. You know. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. he was so funny. Years later, we like in 2007 or 2008, somewhere along there, I. I, somebody, a friend of mine said, you know, you guys should wear the same old clothes that you did before. And I said, well, they don't fit, you know, because <laughs> now we're all fat. And so yeah. he, and he goes, so he goes, well, he goes, he, he goes, you're going to find that lady that made you those clothes because you, you can't sell seven up in a Coke can. And I thought, <laughs> wow, what a great statement. <laughs> and yeah. So I told the band, I said, you know, David is another photographer friend of ours, David Gilbert. And I, he said, and I said, David just said the funniest thing to me. And I told them that line and they said, that's good. And they, they, I said, I'm going to find Kathy scarves. And so I did, I, cause we had Google. Yeah. And so I started Googling Kathy scarves. I couldn't find anything. And then I thought, sat Perouche, I'll do that. Still didn't. And all I found were the gods, the pictures of yeah. the sat Perouche thing. And then, then I thought, oh, yeah, designs because of. So I put that in, designs because of Saperouche. Bingo, there she was. And she goes, I made this clothes for the strawberry alarm clock and for the doors and Buffalo Springfield Beatles. Everybody. Oh, yeah. She made, she made all their clothes, everybody's. Mm -hmm. And so we put her name on our album, her the store. Yeah. And it said designs because of Saperouche for the clothing. And, and she got a lot of business from it. Anyway, I found her. And I, and she goes, Oh my God. She goes, I don't really do it anymore, but for you guys, I will. And she, it, it, it gave, it gave her like a jump start. She started a website and started making the clothes again and brought it all back. And she started. Oh, selling. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we had her make us all big size. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe got big enough for me too. Also in 68, we talked a little bit about that Beach Boys tour. It was sort of considered a failure by the band. I know a lot of stuff got canceled because um, as the Beach Boys were getting on the plane on April 4th, 1968, they had heard of the assassination yeah. attempt on Martin Luther King Jr. And then when they got off and landed in Nashville, um, they learned that he did pass away. And uh, yeah. and that sort of put a damper on things. And I know they, they filmed some stuff. I know Mark sent some shots, some promo shots for their stuff with the Maharishi that they were doing. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, it's considered not successful and in, in Nashville, I think in Columbia, South Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia, Macon, Georgia, little rock, Arkansas, and Jonesboro, Arkansas got canceled because of the, you know, what the supposed riots that they thought would happen. But I've heard great reviews, especially about that stretch in Florida. I've heard some really great reviews from different people who went to the shows. Like the show seemed like they were good, even if they weren't necessarily financially successful. It seemed to me, well, I, we had good turnouts everywhere we played, but it was, you know, when that happened, we were all on the same plane together. And that was, we were, everybody was kind of silent because, you know, it was like, you know, oh no, like the world is changing all of a sudden. This yeah. is bad, 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 bad. And Bobby Kennedy, it was just so far beyond anything that we thought would really happen in, you know, in life. We like we couldn't we couldn't grasp it, you know, and and then when we got well, wherever we were going, I forget where we got off the plane. It was in Nashville, they, actually, about three three oh, and a half yeah, hours yeah, yeah. from. Yeah, and, and they 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 told us we had to stay in our hotel. They took us to the hotel and sequestered us, and they said the shows are going to be canceled. Everything's too dangerous. You're too white. And so we were, you know, yeah. oh, really, you know, well, we're not on that side. <laughs> we're yeah. not on that side, exactly, you know. We're like, you know, 
brotherly love everywhere. Yeah, we were all the, the peace, love, and understanding bunch. There we were, locked away. And then, and then they they did reschedule a couple of things. I think, uh, yeah. But we went on, you know, we went on and continued. We did some more stuff, but a good chunk of the tour just got sliced right out of the. And, they, and we were, it was, we were looking forward to it all because at the point that that was, the bands were all really good. Oh yeah. And the Buffalo Springfield were going through all kinds of weird stuff though with. Their bass player, Bruce, who, who is yeah. another one of my major bass player, you know, idols. And uh, mm-hmm. they, the second tour we did with them, he was deported uh, to back to Canada. He, oh, got himself, he got himself like arrested with a bunch of pot. And uh, when we were, I forget where we were, but he, it, we were in a hotel. That was really peculiar. Anyway, he got sent away back to Canada and, and they had their engineer, Jimmy Messina, play bass on the second tour, which was amazing in itself. He, he came in and he just played every song perfect. And I thought, well, damn, this guy is good. <laughs> yeah. Those bass parts are really good. And, and he did it with a pick, but he did it. And it was really good, you know, and I, I was, I'm in between all the time with a pick in my fingers, but I think now I only play with my fingers. It seems yeah. like it, it, it's just got a different thing to it. I, yeah. you know, I, I started wanting to have the, I started getting away from my, uh, Roto sound strings, you know? Yeah. The McCartney and, style strings. I know McCartney yeah, sort of made those. Yeah. And, and, and twistle and stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, cause I used to like all that too. And, and, uh, and then, and yes, those guys, I liked the bass sounding kind of like that. But then now, then I started getting into the flat wound thing. And the, Well, yeah, McCartney even used the flat wounds, the Roto Sound Black flat wounds on uh, Abbey Road. I know he put, he restrung his Hoffner. I love those flat wound strings. Uh, we, yeah. Let's just do a bass. Yeah. We're going to, we're just going to do another hour, guys, not talk about the doors. We're just going to talk an hour about bass and, and flat wound strings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so another thing that happened in 1968, Arguably your best album, my favorite album, Wake Up, It's Tomorrow. Amazing. I think it changed the dynamic. You know, there's different dynamic changes in the group. Uh, you had two basses, correct? And then Gary left. Yeah. Okay, so I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Those guys all grew up with Gary and they hated it. So, oh, wow. and, and, and I was like, you know, coming in from this, uh, from my other band and I didn't know of all the, they grew up together. Yeah. And so I didn't know of all their stuff, you know, and I only knew my band stuff. And, and then they, they had it in for him. And then they, they just wanted to, they, they took him off a of bass and had me play bass. You know, I was playing some bass, playing guitar, playing percussion, playing different things at first when, when Gary was still there on the first Beach Boy tour. Then I was the only bass player. And then that's when we did the, the second album, too. Although Ed plays bass on it, too, a lot. Gary, they took him off a of bass and made him the uh, road manager. They said, you're going to yeah. bring a briefcase and you'll collect the money you know, before the shows. And all. So that's what he was doing. And then one day we were playing at uh, a girl's Catholic school. And he pulled out his briefcase. And because he told the the nun, the head nun, that um, he, we were, had to get paid before we went on stage. And she goes, oh, you can't wait until after. Uh, we need to tally everything up. And, you know, but we'll we'll pay you right as soon as as soon as we're done. And so he lit, opens up his briefcase and he had a revolver in it. And he showed it to her. Oh my God. And scared the shit out of her. So that was it for us. We thought, okay, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. As a, as a matter of fact, now he has some, his business is, I should plug it. But yeah, um, I, can, I, can, I can cut that anyway, out. Yeah. Anyway, they, they, they fired him and then he sued the band. So it was an ugly thing. Yeah. That turned out that was a real problem. Something that was an ugly thing, though, was this album because one of the songs and what closes out the first side is Curse of the Witches, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah. which for the, for Doors fans, it's almost like a soft parade feel to it. Like it's got sort of the suite of emotions and tempos and styles 
it goes from like a, a lament to like an upbeat pop tune and even sort of like a child nursery rhyme at times with a xylophone. And you're one of the credited writers on it. What do you, can you tell me a bit about that track? For me, it was an instrumental. I wrote the music. Yeah. Okay. All, I wrote all the music. And then, and Randy Seal wrote all the lyrics. The idea came from Steve Bartek, but at this point we were on tour and Steve was at home. So we weren't, yeah. and you didn't trade files in those days. It was an idea that Steve had and, it, and his song was actually called Curse of the Witches. And it was like uh, 21 years ago, yeah, yeah. my mother said to me, and, and he had that kind of line. Well, Randy thought it was, he should apply it to this instrumental that I was writing. And yeah. so he did. So I, I just went along with it. And, but it was, it was only the intro line that he used of Steve. So he, he, Steve didn't get credited on it. Maybe he should have. I don't know. <laughs> but the, the song was interesting thing. It, it was fun to put together in the studio. Like the, that little xylophone, that was a, a studio percussionist. Estes uh, is his last name. I forget. Anyway, his stuff was in the studio. Oh. And you know his cartridge company hadn't picked it up. Well, one of the things was this little xylophone thing, you know, and because uh, Randy played vibes already. He, yeah. he played vibes all over the both albums, all three albums that we did with him. The, the little xylophone was there. He goes, I'm going to put that in the middle that because it was a I put that thing in three, four. And so he did that little xylophone part. And then I had um, Ed. Then I did the, the Ed guitar solo. There was also this gene estes that's the guy's name really renowned percussionist anyway also in there with his stuff was a gong symbol a giant <laughs> huge gong yeah like four foot you know across and and the mallet was there so i said i want to use that gong i want ed king's guitar solo to come out of it i want it to be in five four and and so i I did that section in five four and and hit the gong. I think I think I had Randy hit it and he he hit the gong and Ed's guitar solo comes flying out of the the, yes. the gong. It's really neat. And that was that's why that album is kind of uh, different is because we were in total experimental stage and they allowed us uh, every they just said go for it just keep doing it because we had a hit album already. Yeah, you know the you know, and so and a hit single. So they were letting us have you know carte blanche in the studio. That's that's how that album came out, kind of cool, real experimental, and yeah, we tried all kinds of things. I noticed if your name's on the writing credits, a lot of times you'd like to change tempo. Uh, you you'll go from one tempo. I mean, but it's a groovy, it's a groovy sound and a groovy. It's hard to change tempo though, in in music especially. But but you, it, they're masterful tracks. Uh, the, the ones that you're credited on. I just noticed that's sort of your, you like to change tempo and it's pretty neat when they do. The brand new album that we're recording right now has a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So, so it's going to be like old, pretty much like feel like the old strawberry alarm clock. I was going to get to a uh, black butter. Cause those three, those three at the end, very Morrison esque feel to some of the end and very esoteric lyrics. Um, uh, you yeah. know, but but I know you didn't have to do with the lyrics, but it's it's an interesting. I definitely t- recommend people check that out. It's another song from that album, and I listened to the album for years. Had no idea was a pretty song from Psych Out, and I just thought that was the name of the song. I didn't know there's a movie. Well, I found out there's a movie years later, and I just now watched it like this past week. Watched the extended version of it. Oh. Starred Susan Strasberg and Jack Nicholson. Had a very a bit of a bummer ending, and you know I think Dick Clark was the producer, wanted sort of a negative yeah. drug message. Um, and Ed King helps Jack Nicholson with the with the uh, little bit of guitar part, a little bit he does. But how how did y'all get involved in that, man? It's interesting. Dick Clark loved our band, and yeah. uh, one of his favorite songs was "Birds in My Tree." And he said, "I'm doing a movie, and I and I want you." We had been on American Bandstand already like three or four times, and we had done a couple of live shows with him. We did one in Hawaii with a bunch of people, and. That was a great concert, except for it, it's tied to a, a negative situation. So Dick Clark, he loved us, and he said, "You know, um, I want you guys to come in 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 the theater, this small theater that they had, and and I want you to watch the, where we are with this movie that we're making, and I want to use some of your songs, and I want you to write the theme song." So 
we go into this little theater and he he plays us the thing and he had um the sounds of silence was being used as the theme for the movie because mm-hmm. she's deaf in the movie and stuff yeah and and we thought oh that's that's nice you know the way it fit and he goes yeah but i don't want to use that song i want i want you to to write a a, spe- a special song for the movie so that's what lee and ed wrote that song and it's and lee wrote the lyrics and ed wrote the music and it's Oh, it's such a great song. I mean, when they first brought it in, they played it. They both played guitar on it, and they and they and sang it together. There's, it's a duet that they do, and they got that idea, that duet idea, because of the Simon and Garfunkel. Record. Yeah, it's a beautiful so, song. It gets stuck in your head so easy. I've been humming it for like three days since I saw it. But uh, yeah. Oh man, we we went in the studio, and you know, because the rest of us didn't really have much to do on it. Yeah. You know. And uh, except for singing some of the little harmonies in the background and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but that came out so perfect. And and then Dick Clark said, I want to use Birds in My Tree in the movie and Rainy Day Mushroom Fellow and World's on Fire and Pretty Song from Psycho. So we went uh, and he wanted to re-record Birds in My Tree. It was on our first album. So we went in and did a whole new version of it. I think it was, we did a longer version because the, the, oh, yeah. Yeah. the version on the record in, in the first album is is under two minutes. Yeah. like It's like 158 or something. And so he said he needs more of it. And so... Uh, we went in the studio and did a little bit longer version of it. Then it didn't make it in the movie. It got, it, the scene oh, got cut out. Yeah, but it's in the new one. It's in the new edit, I believe. The 2015 edit, is it? Is it? I believe. Oh, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it. There's an extra, okay. extra like 35 minutes or so. I think it is. I, I believe this is you too, isn't it? It was a picture of you playing flute, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was in that you? Uh, it's, it's Steve Bartek is the one that played flute on the record. But, but you're yeah. for the Panama. Uh, and they give you, they've yeah. got a clear shot of you in the flute. Like you're at full in frame. Um, yeah. Well, you know what? And Steve showed, it's Steve's flute. Yeah. He let me take his flute to the shoot and uh, flute to the shoot. I like that. Yeah, there you go. So, and new, then, new song title. He showed me where to put my fingers. Mm-hmm. So he goes, "This is where it is," but I couldn't make the flutes make a sound. Yeah, I didn't. I couldn't make. I couldn't make a <laughs> bottle make a sound, let alone the flute. And so he can actually play a song on a bottle. <laughs> so, yeah. But anyway, yeah, I played flute on that in the in the clip in the movie. But and that was a funny thing, and so he, he you know, he used yeah. a lot of art stuff for the movie but yeah. dick clark why and and he he was he loved the band and he was a great friend of the band yeah and he uh it's it's really i don't know if he they mentioned the ballroom i don't know if it's actually shot at the windland ballroom or where it was shot but it's like y'all are on a four foot stage and then jack nicholson and his band are on like a 20 foot stage or something i'm like what uh, yeah. it's, it's 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 a trip yeah. I, I think this was actually a played by uh this was the seeds in the movie but they had to come up, or I think the Seeds did some music too. But they did this. This is this has to be Purple Haze, like just a, a direct ripoff. I don't know if you ever heard it or if this was y'all. Oh, this song. No, that's another band, and I, I forget if there's two other bands. One of them was is called The Storybook, and and I forget the other band. But they they did the total Jimi Hendrix thing. Oh, it was complete. Yeah, but it was it. It's an interesting movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, I'd recommend it. I mean, it's it's uh, got a bummer ending. Maybe cut it off for the end, but. Uh, it's 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 interesting. So what I wanted to talk about was the, uh, so I was digging into you know because Strawberry Alarm Clock has a hist- interesting, possibly historical connection to the Doors that I didn't realize. So I was digging through trying to find it, and I mentioned Frank Slay earlier, and he had another act, Freddie Cannon, I believe. Yeah. And I was digging, and I think I found the first Doors cover ever, and uh, I'm going to play it a little bit here. Is this y'all playing back the backing track? Yeah, it is. Wow. This is an amazing cover, too. Oh, this part right here really hits. Say 
walking base right there like that. I can come out of this whenever you want. I was just on. Oh, it's just tripping out. Yeah, man. Isn't it's, that funny? It is. Let me see if I can. How the how y'all ended it? Did y'all fade out? Yeah. But 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 that is. I think. And I'm not just saying this because you're on here. I know I could blow smoke all day if I if I. But this is legitimate. I thought it was better than the Doors version because man, that bass is rocking and and. Uh, I think it's backed with a song called Cincinnati Woman that I. It's credited to written as some of the members of Strawberry Alarm Clock, but I, I, yeah. I don't think it's on an album. How did that happen, man? I mean, y'all are the first historically. You have the first ever cover of a Door song ever. It's that's interesting. I didn't know that. I guess it would have been the first ever. Yeah, but you know, it was. Um, it was that was recorded. I was in the studio watching that, and I wasn't a band member yet. I was still oh, okay. a songwriter and I was sitting there with, and, and watching the whole thing. And I thought it was, you know, see, okay. So the, the alarm clock used mm-hmm. to do a lot of door songs in our live shows. Really? When we, yeah. yeah. Like when we, even when we toured with the beach boys, but he, but we used to do light my fire and, and 20th century Fox and, and different things. So it was, totally normal and i and i and i frank slay i think knew that the alarm clock did play door stuff and freddie cannon wanted to do something um, that was rock and i think it was frank slay's idea and uh but but we knew frank i mean we knew them both real well you know freddie cannon was it was like a kind of the that little family of people you know frankie valley was another one you know because Frank Slay was the publisher of, of the Four Seasons music. Yes, yeah. And he, Frank Slay is, was something else. He, he, as a matter of fact, he sold Incense and Peppermints to Paul McCartney. What? To, yeah, he sold Incense and Peppermints and Tomorrow and, you know, all the singles. He sold, he sold the rights to Paul McCartney, to yeah. MPL. So there's, there's another connection. <laughs> I had no idea about that. That is crazy. Um, man, that is interesting. George, you've been, you've been such a great interview, man. I, I really appreciate you taking your time and, uh, don't, you know, we, we'll, we'll plug it again and I'll try to find a bit. If I don't know if you have a little bit that we could pl- put in right here, of, uh, the new album so people can hear about it. And, but yeah, just, I'm, I know you're chugging away. Probably need to need to go back to the studio and get some more work done. I don't know what you, what the rest of your day's plan, but, Hey, they're they're in the studio and they're doing a guitar solo. We oh here's another Beatle connection. Yeah. So we recorded Day Tripper. Oh, great song. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what they're in the studio today doing the guitar solo for. But we did it as an instrumental, and it's in eleven eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <I'm not. laughs> See, uh, it was a, it was an idea that I had come up with. Um, a long time ago, actually. And I thought, you know, okay, so the, the riff today tripper that bomb, well, it had, I counted how many notes were in it. And I thought, Oh, there's 11 notes in the riff. So if, if I give them equal value, if I just, instead of having it a syncopated riff, if I just go, you know, like that, it'll be an 11. And so, (laughs) It took me a while to figure out, you know, yeah. to play it because you're so used to going bum ba da 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 to go ba da 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 to do it like that. It it was trippy, and so that's what we ended up. We came up with the whole arrangement of it. I guess I did, but because I'm the one that's out there with the odd times and stuff. No, but it's it's great stuff. I can't yeah, I can't wait for people to hear the album. They're gonna hear part of the album, just a little snippet of it here and
and you can support that. Don't forget, we got the GoFundMe link here. I'm going to be pushing it on my socials. It, it's There's a lot of amazing musicians and amazing music that was made back then, and the fact that we're getting more music from such a great group like Strawberry Alarm Clock, where we had two fantastic albums, and I think even the your third album that I, I, the execs sort of stepped in on the first half, but that second side, there's still some gems on uh, The World in the Seashell that I think that second side, there's a lot of stuff that shines on there. Yeah. But, but, you know, George, again, thank you. I will, you know, thank you so much for your time. And you got anything else you want people to know about or anything else where they can find you or the band on? Uh, yeah, there's, a, we have a website. We, we actually secured our name as a website, our .com, strawberryalarmclock.com. And oh. uh, years and years ago, we put every, we, it's active. And as a matter of fact, the GoFundMe will be on there too. And um, I think it goes up on there today. And yeah. then, um, and we, whatever we're doing concerts and stuff, like we just played at the whiskey. Oh yeah. In, in December, which was fun. And, uh, and, and the other show I told you about that was in April, the one about the, uh, raising money for underprivileged kids, music programs inst- to buy instruments that did pretty good too. that concert that raised a lot of money. We do shows and, and we, go in the studio and we there there's little other incarnations of us you know like there's um because there's actually another drummer bruce hubbard that we mm-hmm. played with in high school and stuff and then he toured with us in the 80s he and i and steve bartek just recorded pipeline yeah the surf song by the mm-hmm. chantays we it, it's in seven four <laughs> <laughs> we can't help ourselves no no yeah and we're and you know what we're else what else we're doing right now is we just we're halfway through recording within you without you the Beatles song. Oh yeah, yeah. It's in five eight. Yeah, so, I, I dig it though. I dig it. Um, hey, yeah, you know we're not quite done with it. We don't. We'll finish that up probably in I think February fifth is or sixth is the day that we finish that. Yeah. You know, and and I think because if you look, because I went and saw the Who last year, I went and saw the Zombies. I don't know if you're familiar with them, the British sort of psychedelic rock group. They're the, and the Zombies are coming, starting another tour this year. Um, man, we we need a uh, a Strawberry Alarm Clock tour again. Yeah, I know. We don't have an agent. Yeah, and we don't have a manager, and we don't have a record company. Yeah, which is so we're kind of just dangling out there and. uh and and we're all okay. I mean, it's not like we're broke or something or need no, to but, work. Yeah. But we love playing music. And so, and, and going out and playing is one way to keep it going. So uh, it, it, it's playing it live is fun. And so is the studio. So we have, we have a lot of fun. And so is writing it and rehearsing. We, we love all of the, you know, different things that you have to do when you're a band. And we just keep doing it whether we have representation or not, you know. Hey, but I mean, I think that's the most important thing though. The lo- you doing it for the love of the music and not for the money or so, you know, something like that. Yeah. So, and I didn't yeah. even, I mean, this turned out great. You had a great door story. I had no idea. I didn't put the t- connection together that y'all had been recording the same time the doors would be. Um, There's that- a couple other little funny details with the band. One is since you're a bass player. Yeah. The, one of the members of the Sixpence was Steve, Robbie, mm-hmm. R-A-B-E, and he was the founder of SWR Bass Amps. Really? Yeah. I know. He's yeah. an original member of the Sixpence. He played guitar in the Sixpence, and Ed King played bass, and then Ed yeah. King went off to Leonard Skinner. Yeah, oh, we actually have a, I've got a friend who's, he's a, he's, I'm going to say borderline idolizes Ed King. He has a uh, Leonard Skinner. <laughs> He has a Leonard Skinner tribute band. He's the guitarist called Shooting You Straight. And they play, because I'm from Alabama, so of course, Ed King's like, they might as well put statues of him in every, you know, city across, you know, going down the interstate because Ed King's a legend here. Um, But, 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 you know, it it, it is really, it's really, and when the looks you get when like, cause people, whenever he died, you know, unfortunately passed away. Cause I shared the article about, about strawberry alarm clock. And I was like, Hey, you know, he was in this before and stuff. And people were so amazed. Like he was in a psychedelic rock group before Leonard Skinner. I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> He's yeah. A California kid. He used to joke around with him because his middle name was Calhoun. And, and so we all yeah. call him Cal. That's what his name is to us. We call him Cal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is one more. Got, and Steve Bartek, I don't know if, if you were realized, but he was 
the lead guitar player in Oingo Boingo. Yes, he was. He was. Yeah, yeah. And he's, he did all their albums, produced and played lead guitar. And, you know, because he wasn't able to go on tour with us because he was too young, but he managed to make it. Yeah, Oingo Boingo was, was Danny Elfman. Is, is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so Steve is the orchestrator for all of the Danny Elfman movies. Oh, my all. God. Yeah. I'm 29, so I grew up. I love the Batman movie, the 89 Batman movie. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I still quote it to this day. That is amazing. Yeah, that's such a cool connection, man. Hey, can people yeah. can people buy that strawberry alarm clock shirt? It's a really groovy shirt. Do y'all have that on the yeah, site? Yeah, that's on our website. Yeah, so you can go. I'm I'm actually probably about to go buy one right now as we speak. So <laughs> so um, thank you so much. I've I've taken a lot of your time. Amazing doors connections. Uh, find all Georgia's stuff out there. Go to strawberryalarmclock.com. Is it the strawberry alarm clock or just strawberryalarmclock.com? It's just strawberry alarm clock. Yeah, so go there, find all your stuff, find the GoFundMe. We'll post links, um, and let's get some let's get some more music made, man. That sounds amazing. Thank you again to founding member of Strawberry Alarm Clock, George Bennell, for the interview. You can find the podcast on Twitter at the Doors Pod, and on Facebook by searching "Opening the Doors." If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in one week, but until then, keep the doors open and the music loud. <laughs>